We're grateful to have you as a listener, and we want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. We have a survey running right now and would love to hear from you. It shouldn't take much more than five minutes to complete. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. That's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. When you're done, you can enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. We really appreciate your help. Thanks so much. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. It might be Friday, but the results of Tuesday's primaries and ballot initiatives, especially what happened in Kansas, continue to reverberate. Plus, we've got big jobs, jobs numbers and everything on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So joining me now to discuss all of that, Amber Phillips, politics reporter at The Washington Post. Amber, welcome back to First Look. Hey, Jonathan. So we got to cram in a lot of stuff, but let's start with the big news that's just out. Uh, Huge job creation numbers, 528,000 jobs created, unemployment dipped to 3.5%. And I bring all of that up because these numbers come out less than 24 hours, maybe less than 12 hours after Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona made it known that thanks to some tinkering and some changes, She's down with the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which means that it could it'll pass the Senate. Talk about the um, um, one. What changed that made it possible for her to say, yes, I'll vote for it. And then when might we actually see a vote by the Senate? Yeah. So these job numbers, I think, just really underline for Democrats a, a good week they've had this bipartisan deal. Jobs numbers were higher than even the White House expected. Um, and then, of course, this Kansas surprise Kansas abortion vote that I'm sure we'll talk about. And, and so Democrats are breathing a sigh of relief because they've had a lot of bad news in the past few months. And Senator Kirsten Sinema coming on board with Democrats' plan to address climate change and reduce health care costs for quite a bit of Americans is another huge reason they, they can breathe a sigh of relief. What they did have to do, though, according to reporting from our colleagues, is make concessions on taxing the wealthy, wealthy investors that can get taxed lower uh, than their federal income through a carried interest tax loophole, for example, or the corporate minimum tax rate that President Biden had been touting all week, saying this is going to raise taxes on corporations where Republicans countered that cost is going to get passed on to consumers, so to raise taxes on all of us. Uh, They had to cut that as well, according to initial reporting from our colleagues. They're going to try to make that up other ways. Um, And this is all because Senator Kirsten Sinema, while she's expressed a lot of support for addressing climate change, has been the most skeptical person in the Senate Democratic Caucus about taxing corporations and the wealthy. She doesn't see that as a way forward economically. All right, let's talk about Kansas and and what happened in Kansas. You reported on the Kansas ballot initiative that would have amended the state's constitution to ban abortion. The measure lost by a stunning 19 percentage points, stunning because Kansas is a conservative state that Donald Trump won by 15 points in the 2020 election. Did anyone see that result coming? No, this is as surprising as it sounds, as you just laid out, Jonathan. Abortion rights supporters in Kansas were saying, if we get close uh, before this vote, if we even get close to trying to keep Kansas a state that protects abortion rights, 
that will be a victory for us. Well, it wasn't close. It was a blowout for their side. And I, I just love some of the images um, of these watch parties where you can just see the surprise in, in these um, supporters' eyes. It is also surprising, as uh, political analysts have had time to dig deeper into the numbers, that this amendment, which would have led to banning, essentially, it would have led to banning abortion, although um, proponents of it tried not to frame it that way, wasn't popular in conservative areas of Kansas as well. In fact, there's some data that suggests that all Kansas congressional districts, including ones that voted by 70% for Trump in 2020, oppose changing the constitution in Kansas to allow for an abortion ban. Mm. That's significant. It suggests um, what Democrats are saying could be true, which is that Republicans who want to ban abortion are way out there on the extreme ends of this abortion debate. I've looked at polling that also suggests that is the case. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, this wasn't a you know, Democratic issue or Republican issue or a Democrat running against a Republican. This was a social policy issue. And I was wondering how Democrats are viewing that Kansas vote. Are they sort of hopeful that what happened in Kansas will translate nationwide as uh, folks go to the polls in November for the midterm elections and inure to the benefit of Democratic um, pro-reproductive uh, rights candidates? Yeah, of course they are. You heard President Biden say this week, uh, Republicans, I'm paraphrasing, but Republicans don't know the power of women. They just found out. And so that is that outlined clearly Democrats, uh, I would say their path to trying to keep their majorities in Congress or not lose too many seats in the House specifically, which is to get suburban women excited about voting for Democrats. But as you point out, Jonathan, this Kansas abortion vote was was an instance where abortion rights supporters had their backs against the wall. It was black or white, one or the other. There wasn't a candidate involved. Um, the, even the partisan politics of it were a little bit murky. That's very different than, say, in Michigan, a, a governor's race. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is trying to hold on, a Democrat there. And she, I think she feels like to win and keep her seat in, in a year where a lot of trends are pointing toward Republican momentum, she needs to frame her election as, as if um, abortion rights supporters are backs against, have their backs against the wall in Michigan as well. And she's trying to do that. She's saying, listen, if, if I lose, there's nothing standing between the Republican legislature and a Republican governor from banning abortion in Michigan, for example. Uh, that might be a harder case for Senate candidates like in Nevada and Arizona and Georgia who are trying to either hang on or win or win an election in that state because there's so much other politics involved and Republicans are really hoping to inject the conversation around inflation, costs are still high, potentially a recession, not good news for the party in power, and, and hope to tamp down some of that enthusiasm for Democrats. Well, then let's talk about Arizona. Uh, big night in Arizona for candidates who falsely believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. Carrie Lake won the gubernatorial nomination. Blake Masters won the uh, GOP Senate nomination. Amber, what does that tell us about Trump's influence among Republican primary voters? It says that at the very least, the um, I would say that the price of admission in excuse me, in Republican politics is you have to deny the 2020 election results. 
it wasn't just U.S. Senate and, as we learned last night, governor in Arizona, um, where these very vocal election deniers won their primaries. It was Secretary of State in Arizona and Attorney General. In fact, the top four positions statewide on the Republican side uh, went to election deniers in that state. This is a state that Biden won, actually, in 2020. And so Democrats are really hoping that gives them a chance to to hang on or win some of these seats, um, in a, again, in a, in a potentially tough environment for them. But even as we see evidence, as my colleagues had reported this week, that some Trump voters, some uh, GOP primary voters are kind of souring on the pre- the former president. They, they're sick of his drama, they say. They say they feel like, let's not focus on the 2020 election. They're still rewarding his rhetoric and his, and his attempt to remake the Republican Party with votes. And, and nowhere is that clearer than in Arizona. And real quickly, we've got less than two minutes left, but let's talk about Arizona. State Attorney General uh, Eric Schmidt won the nomination for Senate over the disgraced former former Governor Eric Greitens. How big a boost is that um, to Republicans in their hopes of winning back the Senate? All they need to do is get a net net gain of one seat and they've got the majority. Yeah, this was actually in Missouri. And I would say that it's not that big of a boost to Republicans. It just helped them avoid disaster. They're worried about a lot of candidates that could be troublesome. Blake Masters in Arizona denies the election might be too far right for the for um, a broader electorate. You can make that argument for Republican candidates in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, uh, in in Wisconsin, for example. And so uh, Republicans feel like if they can convince voters their candidates aren't too extreme, they can take back the Senate. As you said, they just need to net one vote. But they're worried um, that, that they have so many candidates that are troublesome. And Missouri was just going to be an added worry to them. Now it's not. That was a must-win state for them anyway, just to kind of keep the status quo of 50-50. Amber Phillips, Washington Post politics reporter, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. I'm going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post deputy editorial page editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist George Will. Ruth, George, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Okay, first things first, can we just real quickly talk about the July jobs report? 528,000 jobs created, unemployment dips down to 3.5%. Up. Does this mean we're really heading to a recession? Ruth, I'll start with you. Well, it's actually quite confusing. It is obviously terrific news for all of the people whose jobs were created. It is obviously um, terrific news for all of the people who were not laid off um, and that incredibly low um, unemployment rate. It is complicated news for um, people like Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who was trying to cool the economy, but this is not an economy that looks like it's cooling. It's an economy that looks like it's revving up. And so people who are focused on inflation are going to look at those numbers and I think um, have a little bit of pause, even though they are numbers to celebrate. George? 
Yes, we, we seem to be on the cusp of a full employment recession, which is an interesting and nice phenomenon. One asterisk over the employment figures. The employment figures do not count those people who are unemployed by choice, who have chosen to drop out of the job market. That is, workforce participation is still alarmingly low, particularly among males of prime work age, basically mid-20s to mid-50s. So there's a small asterisk over that, but still, uh, we're in terra incognita. And uh, Ruth talks about Jerome Powell fighting inflation. When you have an inflation somewhere between 7 and 9%, and all the Fed does is raise interest rates to 2%, uh, that's really not yet uh, effectively fighting inflation. At some point, interest rates have to exceed the rate of inflation. And, and landing ahead, that Jerome Powell is looking for. Say that again, Ruth? He said that would be not the soft landing that Jerome Powell would be looking for. That would be a really strap yourself into the seat, pretty tight landing. There is no precedent for the uh, Federal Reserve orchestrating a soft landing from inflation as high as it is today. It just isn't. It hasn't happened before. Maybe he'll do it again. But since he's the architect of our problem, I've got limited enthusiasm for his approach to solving our problem. <laughs> I love that that super dry George Will win. OK, so we talked about the economy. So I, I want to talk about the um, um, Inflation Reduction Act, because we saw a puff of white smoke coming from Senator Kirsten Sinema uh, late yesterday saying she's ready to vote for it with, a few with some concessions um, from Senate leadership to, to get her vote. Ruth, uh, how significant is this? And um, should it be considered a win for President Biden and for the Democrats, even though it's not the Build Back Better bill uh, that the president was hoping to get a year ago. Well, I'm going to leave to my friend George the title of the bill because I don't want to take away his thunder on that, um, whether or not it's going to reduce inflation. Um, yes, it is a win for President Biden. I think it's a win for the country. It's a win for uh, the climate. It's a win for people who um, need help with their health insurance premiums and would have had that taken away. Um, it is uh, good that Senator Sinema finally sent up her puff of smoke, as you say, and agreed to do this. It is really regrettable, um, and I could come up with a stronger adjective um, for a little later in the morning. Um, really regrettable that she uh, insisted on these tax changes because the carried interest loophole is something that only benefits the rich and keeping it um, only benefits the rich. And I do not understand how this serves her constituents. George, before you jump in here, and, and just tell me whether you know, this political assessment is right or wrong, but it was long known that Senator Sinema was not interested in, did not support the, the, the closing of the carried interest loophole. And the fact that um, Manchin and Leader Schumer put it into the bill in the first place could be seen as a, a gimme to Senator Sinema. We'll put it in there. It gives her something to, to take out and change, and we still get to pass the bill. That's what happened. 
Yes, of course this counts as a win. Now, whether or not it will be a politically resonant win, I doubt. Uh, I don't think across the country in the coffee shops and beaches of America, people are agonizing over the carried interest loophole. Uh, <laughs> it's a win. It's a much smaller win than he wanted. Progressives will be unhappy about this. Uh, but what he wanted is was some sense that he's not floundering and that his administration has some kind of momentum. And I think he got it from this. Mm -hmm. All right, let's keep talking about, about President Biden and shift our attention to Kansas and the stunning um, defeat of a constitutional uh, ballot initiative that would have uh, made it possible to ban abortions in Kansas. Here's what uh, President Biden said the day after that vote. Let's listen. With a record turnout, voters of Kansas defeated a ballot initiative to remove the right to choose an abortion from the Kansas <clears throat> Constitution. It's in the Kansas Constitution. They're trying to strike it and eliminate it from the Kansas Constitution. In a decisive vote, in a decisive victory, voters made it clear that politicians should not interfere with the fundamental rights of women. And the voters of Kansas sent a powerful signal that this fall, the American people will vote to preserve and protect the right and refuse to let them be ripped away by politicians. Ruth, your reaction to uh, the president's comments, but also your reaction to what can only be described as a stunning, stunning result out of Kansas. Well, we did a lot of advanced planning for what we would write after Tuesday night. And I have to admit that our advanced planning did not include a win in Kansas. Um, it was, a, stunning is the right word, the one that you used. The And, and it's, from my point of view, um, as a, a supporter of abortion rights, remarkably good news. Um, it's remarkably good news in the short term for Democrats as they look at what um, it seems to be shaping up as a very difficult election for them and the, with the inflation headwinds that we've been talking about um, as a way of finally proving what they've talked about for a long time but have never really shown, which is abortion as a motivating factor to get women and other um, Democratic supporters to the polls and maybe peel off some of those all-important suburban women, independents, maybe even some Republicans, as we saw in Kansas. Uh, in the longer term, um, both now and in the future, since the Supreme Court has, um, for better or worse, worse in my view, um, turned abortion into, at least for now, a state-by-state -state issue, um, it suggests that um, there is some hope in even ruby red states like Kansas for abortion rights supporters to prevail. Um, I would add one note of a slight caution or maybe even doom uh, in light of that, which is I had spent the previous week writing about the abortion rights debate in Indiana, where the debate before the Indiana legislature is between a bill that completely prohibits abortion except for the life of the mother and a bill that completely prohibits abortion except for the life of the mother and rape and incest. And so if that is the way a lot of state legislative debates are going to go, this uh, we're not going to have a lot of great nights like we did in Kansas. And George, I would love to get your, your reaction, but also I'm wondering if the Kansas results are specific to Kansas or do they really hold national implications for November? I think the turnout increase, particularly among suburban women, is national in significance. Uh, 
But what Kansas did is the first step of a two-step process. Now they have to decide what, in fact, the law is going to be. And I think when the dust settles in many states, in most states, the United States abortion regime is going to look some, an awful lot like Europe's. That is, they're going to reject the uh, extremists on the right to life side, which say no exceptions, no abortion, even for rape and incest. On the other hand, they will also, I think, in, in most places, reject the extremist view, which is that abortion should be available through all nine months of the gestation of a human fetus. That bothers people. So what you're going to get is something like, dare I say, the Mississippi law, which is restrictions up to 15 to 20 weeks. That's sort of European norm, which is about 95 percent of all the abortions that take place in the United States. So you, both extremes are going to lose and we're going to wind up with, with a rather temperate reflection of what I think is clearly American public opinion, uh, probably reflecting a 60 to 70 percent of Americans, which is something like a cutoff after, uh, say, 20 weeks. Go ahead, Can I raise my hand? Ah. Um, I would like to um, take that bet with George, and I would very much like to lose that bet. Um, but I think um, that that is not the prognosis that I see. Um, if only, uh, if, if we had a national rule that allowed abortion along the lines of most European countries up to, you know, actually with a lot of other support, but say up to 15 weeks of pregnancy with understandable exceptions after that, I could, um, I personally could live with that, but that is not what we are going to see in um, multiple states, probably half the states, we are going to see extreme bans, and by extreme I mean absolutely no abortion except to save the life of the mother, absolutely no abortion except for cases of rape, and including uh, rape and incest, perhaps abortion up to six weeks of pregnancy. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at Indiana, if you look at West Virginia, if you look at the trigger laws that have gone into effect, they do not um, reflect that European landscape that George is talking about. So George, I don't know when it is you're going to need to buy me lunch, but it might be in a year, it might be in two years, um, um, and I'm going to not eat it with gusto. Well, if I get to buy your lunch, I win the bet then, because uh, having lunch with Ruth is, is good fun. But uh, re remember, a lot of these trigger laws were passed by state legislators in the what they thought was the sure and certain knowledge that, that nothing was going to come to pass, that they, were, they could uh, try to placate rhetorically and with gestures, uh, the more extreme uh, position on uh, opposing abortion. Then the Supreme Court rounded on them and gave them what they said they wanted. And now they have to live with the consequences. And I, I think David Von Briel of The Post has, has written about this twice now. And I think he's absolutely right that uh, now that the consequences are real and the rhetoric uh, is coming home to roost, as it were, uh, I, I, I think most Americans, a large number, majority of Americans are going to live under, as I say, a European uh, abortion regime. All right, I'll well, see I'm you in I'm going to I'm going to horn in on that lunch if it happens. Um, we I wanted to get to um, the incredible ad that um, Vice President, former Vice President Dick Cheney did for his daughter, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, in her really tough battle for reelection. 
No, we've got less than five minutes left, and we have to talk about um, two sports greats uh, that passed away this week. Uh, Bill Russell, the Boston Celtics great, and Ben Scully, the famed voice of, of the Dodgers for 67 years. George, there is no bigger baseball fan on the planet than you. So can you real quickly uh, talk about Ben Scully's contributions to the game? Well, baseball is in a way made for radio because it's a game of episodes, strike one, ball one, first inning, second inning. And there's a lot of uh, moments for silence or talk to, or painting word pictures. Uh, much has been made about Scully's uh, eloquence and the wonderful voice, which I think like FDR's and Ronald Reagan's and maybe the three most recognizable voices of the 20th century in America. He was also understood the eloquence of silence. As luck would have it, the Dodgers were playing the Braves when Henry Aaron hit the home run that put him past uh, Babe Ruth on the all-time home run list. And Scully broadcast the ball leaving the ballpark and then fell silent for, I think, three minutes, yeah. uh, letting the crowd noise and the event itself marinate people. It was, it was a great moment. I remember one night he was uh, go in the pregame run-up. He was giving information about who's hurt and who's not and who's playing. And they're playing the Cubs, the Dodgers were. And he says, and the Cubs, Andre Dawson is listed as day-to-day. -day. But aren't we all, said Scully. <laughs> kind of drollery that, uh, that you had to listen for because you knew it was coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and Ruth, Bill Russell, excuse me, the Boston Celtics great. He was awarded the Medal of Freedom in 2011 um, by, by President Obama, not just for his basketball greatness, but also for his activism in civil rights from boycotting a game in Kentucky in 1961 because uh, two black teammates were refused service to marching with, with Dr. King. Uh, in, in the little bit of time that we have left, talk more about the importance of Bill Russell. Well, um, I am the last um, person probably at the Washington Post who should be talking about basketball, um, but so I won't do that, I, but I will speak to um, what I've read of his um, incredible um, performance on civil rights, not just marching, not just arguing, but enduring, enduring unbelievable treatment at the hands of um, a teammates, opposing teammates, fans, um, Boston Celtics, his house was ransacked, uh, racial epithets were written, and um, somebody defecated in his bed. Um, th that kind of racial animus that he dealt with, with grace and um, resilience and just keeping on showing his basketball greatness was really remarkable. And, and this one of the stories that I like the most has to do with his unwillingness to sign autographs. And he would tell people that he wouldn't sign um, their autograph, that he, um, not that he wouldn't, but that he um, chose not to. And then he would say, but would you like to shake my hand? What a magnificent sentence. Would you like to shake my hand? That seems to me to be the essence of Bill Russell, a man who was willing to shake hands with people across the spectrum um, and to keep on going despite um, the obstacles that he faced and who left America a much, much better place than he found it. Here, here on that score. And also, I'm just I'm just hearing that we actually have do have a little bit more time left, Ben. 
um, than, than I thought. Real, real quickly, Ruth and George, I do want to get um, your reaction to former Vice President Dick Cheney putting an ad out to, uh, in support of his daughter in her very tough August 16th uh, Wyoming primary for her congressional seat. Will it work? Ruth, real fast. Um, I'm here in Wyoming, um, even in bluish Jackson Hole, um, emphasis on the ish. Um, there are a lot of Cheney signs. The Cheneys live here, um, but there are a lot of signs for her opponent. And it was a powerful, powerful ad. It's going to take a lot of Cheney magic still to get her across the finish line in that primary. Do you agree, George? I do. The, the word is magic, and uh, in the real world, it doesn't work. On that note, George Will, Ruth Marcus, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.